Today on the Church Next podcast, we're going to talk about Martin Luther's life and career and listen to an overview of how Luther's early writings created a foundation for a movement that would eventually become the Protestant Reformation. Martin Luther's work ignited the beginning of Protestant Christianity. His writings became the basis for the Lutheran denomination. His protests against corruption helped him motivate a massive reformation within the Catholic Church. Through his writings, and especially through his translation of the Bible into German, he standardized one dialect of German in a country that had previously been separated into such varied dialects that its people could not understand one another. Hello and welcome back. I'm Carrie Graves with Church Next. Today we'll hear from Dr. Alec Ryrie, professor in the Department of Theology and Religion at the University of Durham, author, blogger, and church historian. His most recent book is Unbelievers, An Emotional History of Doubt. Alec's current research is on the history of how Protestantism became a global religion in the 17th century and how it reveals deeper currents in the history of Christianity and of the modern world. Our podcasts are curated from our online learning library at churchnext.tv. Learn more about us there. If you'd like to support us, please consider a monthly subscription. That will give you access to all of our individual online classes. Your generosity helps us produce digital experiences that help shape disciples. Martin Luther was a study in contradictions. His Catholic faith led him to become an Augustinian monk, and from there to start the Protestant Reformation. He was a theology professor at an obscure university who stayed in his relatively unimportant town, who reached millions of people with his words and ideas. He was driven profoundly by the sense that he could never do enough to rid himself of the enormity of his sins, though he tried every possible method of doing so. And he was a man who ate heartily, advocated drunkenness to combat despair, and disdained the celibate life. In today's podcast, Alec will talk with us about the background and run-up to the most significant religious realignment in Christian history in the shadow of its central character, Martin Luther. Alec helps us understand the person and context of the Reformation in an accessible and deeply informed manner. It seems appropriate that Luther's career as a theologian began with a thunderstorm. According to his own account, terrified of dying in a bad thunderstorm, he promised St. Anne he would become a monk, and then insisted on keeping the promise in the face of financial concerns, his family's distress, his own unhappiness at the monastery, and the irritation of his fellow monks. From the beginning, Luther's life demonstrated the passion, tenacity, and unwillingness to compromise that pushed him to turn the church upside down. In this segment, we'll hear from Alec on Luther's professional origins, which, from a worldly perspective, were unpromising. He disappointed his hardworking family by becoming a monk, and then annoyed the monks by being, as they saw it, self-focused and melodramatic about his own sinfulness. The monks sent him to an obscure university in Wittenberg, where they likely expected him to live an unassuming life. But in this matter, he surprised them also.
So with Martin Luther, we're dealing with one of the most unlikely of the, the great Christian theologians. He doesn't fit the stereotype. He's not a, a great office holder. The only job he ever holds is as professor of theology at an obscure Eastern German university. He's, he's frankly fat. He's much more of a sensualist than great Christian theologians are supposed to be. Um, he can be positively foul-mouthed at times. His, his use of language is really shocking to modernize. Um, he's open in his celebration of you know, his enjoyment of, of his sensuality. Uh, he's a great beer drinker. He openly celebrates the fact of his being married. Uh, he's not the first great, great Christian theologian to be married, but maybe the first one to really make a point of it and to celebrate it in that sort of public event. Um, and he and his wife together become icons of the perfect Protestant family. You'll find their portraits side by side in, in good Lutheran homes. It's a very medieval story. He's, he's very much a man of the Middle Ages, um, born in a moderately prosperous um, Saxon family in the in the 1480s. His his father is a miner, um, and is choosing to set up his son um, in life with the fortune that he himself has made by sending him to university. And he's going to become a lawyer. I mean, this is the kind of thing that that ambitious parents do for their children down the ages. And so he sends young Martin off to university, and he prospers. And then disaster strikes when he's 18 years old and something again tremendously medieval happens to him. He's caught in a thunderstorm uh, at night. He's terrified. This is all from his, his later autobiographical reminiscences, some of which are, you know, we have to ask questions about, but it's the story we've got and the fact that this is the story he chooses to tell us is interesting. Anyway, anyway the story is he's caught in this thunderstorm and he's terrified. It's at night. He thinks he's going to die and so he makes a vow. He makes a vow to St. Anne, to the mother of the Virgin Mary, promising that if he survives, he'll become a monk. And he does, and he keeps his vow. To his father's horror, you know, all that expensive legal education up in smoke, he goes off and joins the Augustinian order, fashionable, scholarly, um, monastic order, and apparently hates it. He finds the, the struggle of monastic life to begin with tremendously difficult. Not so much the discipline, but the confrontation with his own sinfulness that, that this life involves. This is a, a, a rigorous existence of prayer, of penitence, of, of study. But he finds that instead of coming to terms with and overcoming his own sins, the more he confronts them, the more he's sunk underneath them. Uh, he later says that you know, if a monk could ever have saved himself by monkery, it would have been him, very Luther kind of thing to say. But instead, all he's able to do is convince himself of his own sinfulness and the utter distance between that and God's righteousness. Uh, his superiors, recognizing the, the drama that this novice is making about, about himself, so pack him off to university to, to study theology. Um, and he goes to, to Wittenberg 
university eventually where, where he, he takes up a teaching job in 1511. Uh, and that's where he remains for the rest of his life. It's, as I said, it's the only job he ever holds. Um, Pat Collinson, one of the great historians of the period, says that you know, for Luther, the Reformation happens between lectures. Um, other than you know, a, a few brief periods away, he continues to, to, to lecture in biblical studies for the, for the remainder of his life. And during the course of the following decade, we don't know precisely when this happens, if there was a, a single event. Um, between 1511 and 1520, at the very latest, he has a breakthrough. He comes out of this spiritual despair, this sense of being unable to free himself from his own sins, and breaks through to a completely different way of believing. During this time, humanist scholars were fueling intellectual controversy in the church. Christian humanists of the 16th century wanted to use scholarship to improve the church's understanding of important Christian texts. In 1516, the great classical scholar Erasmus published a version of the New Testament that not only improved the Latin over that of the traditional Vulgate text, but also included the New Testament's original Greek, so that scholars could review and improve on his translation. Erasmus' desire to cleanse scripture of translation errors that had caused people to misunderstand the Bible is a good example of the larger goal of humanist Christians. They wanted to use scholarship to bring new understanding to what the early church had been like and what early Christians had believed. They wanted to remove impurities that had crept into the church over the years and bring it back to the simple piety of the early church. Luther described his initial revelation that God's salvation was based in faith as an epiphany that occurred while he was reading Romans 1.17. The one who is righteous will live by faith. Let's hear more as Alec offers some cultural context for Luther's revelation and subsequent actions. What we know is that he tells us that he's reading Paul's letter to the Romans, um, chapter 1, and comes across a verse which he'd read many times before and which might seem very innocuous, the just shall live by faith, verse 17. And he says that at that I felt the gates were opened and that I'd straightway been admitted to paradise itself, which may seem a slightly odd reaction to this, this you know, straightforward verse. But what he finds is that this opens up to him a completely different way of understanding what it is that God's love and God's justice means. God's justice, he had up until then always seen as something which could only condemn him. He knows that he is a, a miserable sinner. The more he confronts his sins, the, the deeper they seem to be. Um, and he, the, the, the circle he's caught in is the conviction that God will punish him for these sins and God should punish him. He cannot deny the justice of God's punishment. What he recognizes through his, his reading of of scripture, above all through his reading of St. Paul, crystallized for him by his encounter with that verse, is that God's justice is something which can also rescue him, that God's justice can be given to him 
as a sinner um, so that he can be rescued from his sins despite his, despite, almost because of his utter unworthiness for it. And of course, when a, a scholar and theologian has an intellectual breakthrough, what he does is put it in his lectures. Um, and this is what Luther does. He spends much of the, the middle part of that decade thrashing out these issues. And we can see them. We, we, we have these lectures. We can see him beginning to tease out these ideas and what they might actually mean for Christian living. And for much of that time, it looks as if this is simply going to become one professor's private theological breakthrough. Many of the ideas that he's having around this are not particularly outlandish. They're picking up on, on, on ideas which are, which are there in the, in the atmosphere. But then in 1517, a set of different events come together which turn this private spiritual breakthrough into a public crisis. So the church in late medieval Europe, which is sometimes caricatured as being dreadfully corrupt uh, and, and overcome with difficulties, and of course it was corrupt and it was overcome with difficulties, the church always is, but there's an enormous amount of energy and renewal within the church as well, enthusiasm for, for new movements, newly invigorated piety. The, the church is doing what it's done so many times in the medieval period before, which is to generate renewal from within itself. And one of the, the liveliest of these movements at the time is the, the set of, of broad, disparate movements which we clump together under the misleading term humanism. Misleading because nowadays humanism is taken to mean secular atheism, which is, is very different from what it, what it meant in, in that period. Humanism in the 16th century context means something more like the study of the humanities, as we would say today. And the broader ethos of humanism, which is to return to original sources, to simplify, to move to a, a, a clear ethical Christianity rather than complex ceremonial, which is, of course, entirely in keeping with you know, the significant strands of Catholic piety. So the great intellectual battle within the churches in that the early 16th century is between this movement for humanist scholarship, which is pressing for a simple piety, emphasizing good scholarship, good learning, ethics, rather than ceremonial and wealth. The, 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 the contrast between wealth as corrupting and poverty as, 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 as meaning simple ethical living is important in this. So the great crisis which has Germany convulsed in the, the early part of the decade turns around the, the scandal of a scholar of Hebrew, one of the great early Christian scholars of Hebrew, a man named Reuchlin, who had, of course, learned his Hebrew from Jewish scholars. Who else is going to teach you? And this makes him, in the eyes of some of the more old-fashioned scholars of the time, suspect. And in particular, a converted Jew, a Jewish convert to Christianity, a man named Pfefferkorn, accuses Reuchlin of Judaizing 
of contaminating his Christianity with, with Judaism. And this becomes a, a, a great cause celebre. Reuchlin's accused of heresy, and the, the humanist scholars from across the continent rally to his support and depict this as a battle between honest scholarship and authoritarian obscurantism. It's one which, in its legal terms, is, remains unresolved. Reuchlin is still under suspicion at the, at the time of his death. But in public relation terms, is, is an overwhelming victory for the, for the humanist brethren. And this sets them up to expect battles between these brave scholars willing to, to face down the authoritarian obscurantists who are trying to crush free inquiry and, 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 and the true Christian spirit. And it's into this sort of atmosphere that Luther first appears as a public figure. The sale of indulgences was one of the particular corruptions in the medieval Catholic Church that frustrated Luther. The granting of indulgences originated in compassion. People wanted ways to help those who had not been able to confess their sins before death to get through the pain of purgatory. By Luther's time, however, the sale of indulgences was a corrupt practice whose purpose was to gain wealth for the salesmen and the church at the expense of parishioners. In contemporary artwork, the sale of indulgences is depicted as a major cause of economic inflation. Let's hear more from Alec on how and why the concept of purgatory emerged as part of the theology of salvation during this time. His rallying point, it's a particular theological point, the issue of indulgences, which are tied up with the, the Catholic theology of salvation as it's being preached at the time. Again, we need to back up a little bit here to understand the, the nature of the, of, of the question. Catholic theology of salvation turns around the importance of the sacraments. The, the sacrament of baptism, is essential for, for salvation. That in, in the teaching of the time, it's very clear that the unbaptized simply cannot be saved, will go to hell if to that outermost circle of hell called limbo if, if, if they die as infants. Um, having then been baptized, it's necessary to regularly expunge those further sins that you accumulate through sacramental confession, penance, absolution. And so most Christians spend their life on this treadmill between absolution and further sin and then confession. On the most austere traditional leading, reading, your salvation depends on where you are on that treadmill when you die. That if you die with sins unconfessed or penances unconformed, then you cannot be saved. But that is an exceptionally tough reading. Of, 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 of the theology of salvation. And so by the, the high Middle Ages, this has been displaced or softened by the introduction of purgatory as a major theological theme, particularly in Northern Europe. Purgatory is the opportunity for penances to be completed uh, or for unconfessed sins to be worked off after death. 
so that if you die with sins outstanding, then the penances for them can be completed. In what's clearly seen as a place of suffering, the sufferings of purgatory are often described as very much akin to those of hell, the great difference being that they're temporary, that once you're admitted to purgatory, your eventual salvation is guaranteed, that you will work off these, these sins and be admitted to heaven. Uh, it can only happen if the sins are, are, are venial rather than, rather than mortal, that is, that, they're, um, that, that you, these aren't sins which were committed in the full knowledge of their being sinful. But nevertheless, it means that most Christians can now re realistically hope that they will be eventually admitted to heaven after a period of suffering in purgatory, which may be rather an extended period of suffering. And this is where the theology of indulgences come in. Indulgences are a means of applying the accumulated merits of the saints to the sins of a particular believer. Because one of the great points about purgatory is that the souls in purgatory don't suffer alone. The living pray for them uh, and can indeed perform penances on their behalf to hasten them on their way. And the saints in heaven also pray for them. And since the, the Pope, as the Vicar of Christ, has its assumed control over the treasury of merit, the accumulated merits of all the saints, it's reasonable to think that he may then apply those merits to a particular individual to deliver them from purgatory, either to reduce their, their, the time of their suffering there or to, to, to speed them altogether. It's first used during the Crusades in the recognition that Crusaders are, who are killed in battle aren't likely to be able to offer a full confession at the point of their deaths. Um, but there's a straightforward economics at work here. These indulgences are enormously valued. They're very easy for the church to produce and so the temptation for them to become more and more readily available uh, presses on on, on the church continuously. And by the time you get to, to our period, to the early 16th century, it's become commonplace for indulgences to be provided in recognition not simply of great service to the church, such as going on a pilgrimage, but in recognition of financial gifts to the church. It's never quite openly stated that they're for sale, but that's in effect the result. And so when the indulgence sellers come through Luther's town of Wittenberg in 1517, and when it's clear that the indulgence they're proclaiming is not simply to support the rebuilding of St. Peter's in Rome, which is its formal purpose, but also to pay off the very substantial debts which the Archbishop of Mainz had accumulated when corruptly and illegally purchasing his archbishopric, Luther is not the only person to find that his conscience is a little offended by this. We tend to picture Martin Luther defiantly nailing his 95 theses to the door of the Wittenberg Castle Church while people around react with awe at his bravery. In fact, the act of posting the document, if he really nailed it up at all, was not all that unusual. 
As an academic, Luther publicized theses designed to open up debate about a theological practice that he disliked. That's what academics did. The image that we might picture when we imagine Luther making history is not one of a man defiantly nailing a document to a door, but one of a man defiantly printing pamphlets. In this segment, Alec describes how Luther's use of print technology and his choice to make his arguments available in German as well as in Latin, combined with his powerful prose style to spread the controversy about indulgences farther than Luther could possibly have anticipated. He was able to rouse an unprecedented number of people, both within the scholarly world and outside it, to enter the argument very quickly. Indeed, the conflagration happened so quickly and so powerfully that neither Luther nor the church authorities realized at first what a fire they had started with their argument about salvation and the sale of indulgences. He does what any academic at the time facing a theological practice that he disliked would have done, which is that he publishes a short set of theses denouncing the, the, the practice. In this case, 95 of these theses, short bullet points, one or two sentences, laying out exactly what he thinks is wrong and inviting a debate on the subject. It's said that he nailed these 95 theses to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg. It's perfectly possible that he did that, although the first testimony that we have to it comes from some years later. Um, there would be nothing particularly controversial about it. This, you know, the, the, the church door may even have been acting as a kind of notice board. He certainly wasn't intending to conceal the theses. He sends them. He sends a copy of them to Archbishop, the, the Archbishop of Mainz, whose practices he's denouncing. What he wants to do is to start an argument. He does not, at this point, intend to start the Reformation or anything like it. He simply wants to bring his understanding of the theology of salvation that he's been working towards into dialogue with what he thinks is a particularly corrupt practice. And at that stage, it's perfectly possible that that's what could have happened. So he could have set off exactly the kind of argument that he wanted to, but instead he finds that he's stirred up a hornet's nest of opposition by denouncing one of the significant income streams of his local archbishop, and by doing so in perhaps unnecessarily provocative terms. The reaction he gets, principally from the main indulgence seller whom he attacks, is not a debate about salvation, but an accusation of heresy. He's being charged with defying the church's authority, and instead of picking up on the substantive points that he wants to make, the reply he's given is simply a demand to submit. But it quickly becomes clear that Luther is more than your ordinary theology professor at this point. He doesn't rush the theses into print himself, at least so we're told. Um, the initial decision to print them is taken out of his hands. They're passed to the printer without his knowledge. But he does, and indeed likewise, the decision to translate them into German. And initially he's nonplussed by this. But he does then quickly pick up on the opportunity that the new technology of print offers to him and follow, follow the theses with a sermon laying out more fully his views 
on the subject. And Luther discovers within himself at this point a talent for populist, almost rabble-rousing preaching, which means that he suddenly becomes able to employ the technology of print to reach a mass audience with a controversial issue in a way that has never really happened before. Within months, he has become a celebrity figure. So this means that all the veterans of the Reuchlin controversy are instantly able to leap in onto, onto this one. They think they know what's going on. This is another case of a brave scholar facing down obscurantist tyranny, which can only deal with argument by accusations of heresy. So Luther finds that he has a ready-made body of supporters waiting for him. He also finds and discovers within himself this enormous talent for writing. He has a, a knack, discovers a knack, for vivid imagery, for straightforward demotic German, which is able to reach out well beyond the, the, the scholarly arena to connect with a, with a wider population in a way that is almost completely unprecedented. There's nothing has been attempted by this with the, the, the technology of print before. Um, print has been around for 70 years nearly by this point, but nevertheless, this is the first time when it's used to build a mass movement uh, on the back of pamphlet literature in the way that Luther finds himself doing. So over the next two plus years, a series of set-piece encounters take place between Luther and his various opponents, uh, in which Luther, to his intense frustration, repeatedly attempts to have this conversation, this argument about the nature of salvation, about what it means to be a justified sinner, and in which his opponents repeatedly refuse to have that argument, because they now insist that this is a matter not of theology but of obedience. That's the end of Alec's talk. If you're interested in reading more about Martin Luther, look into Here I Stand, A Life of Martin Luther by Roland H. Bainton and Martin Luther, Confessor of the Faith by Robert Cobb. Online, the Project Wittenberg website has many resources by and about Martin Luther and other Lutherans, including an extensive Martin Luther page. Dr. Ryan Reeves, an assistant of historical theology at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, has a YouTube channel called Historical Theology for Everyone, which offers short lectures on specific aspects of Luther's life and work. That's the end of our time today with Alec. If you are interested in learning more about his work, visit his blog at alecryrie.blogspot.com. In addition, check out his books, Unbelievers, An Emotional History of Doubt, and Protestants, The Faith That Made the Modern World, among others. If you're interested in learning more about Martin Luther and the Reformation, check out our church next courses, Martin Luther, Here I Stand, with Alec, a follow-up to the work you are listening to today, and The Lutheran Tradition with Mark Tranvik. That's the end of today's podcast. Thanks for tuning in. 
If you'd like to learn more about us, go to churchnext.tv. We close with the collect for the Feast of Martin Luther from a great cloud of witnesses. O God, our refuge and our strength, you raised up your servant Martin Luther to reform and renew your church in the light of your word. Defend and purify the church in our own day and grant that, through faith, we may boldly proclaim the riches of your grace, which you have made known in Jesus Christ our Savior, who with you and the Holy Spirit lives and reigns, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen.